In May of 2021, the Supreme Court agreed to take up a dispute over a Mississippi ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Past cases set the precedent that women have the right to abortion up to about the point of fetal viability, which is around 24 weeks. But the justices signaled they were going to reconsider that. If they reversed that precedent on viability, it would have huge implications for the landmark case Roe v. Wade. That's a nearly 50-year-old judgment that effectively legalized abortion in America and made it a constitutional right. The Supreme Court's judgment on the Mississippi case is due to be released any day now here in the summer of 2022. However, likely, as you've heard, a draft of the majority opinion of the court was leaked a couple months ago. And this draft revealed how the justices were likely going to rule in favor of upholding the Mississippi ban after 15 weeks. And they were even going to go further and likely strike down Roe v. Wade. Justice Alito wrote in the 98-page leaked draft, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. He goes on, quote, The Constitution makes no reference to abortion. No such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. End quote. And it's true that abortion is completely absent from the U.S. Constitution, both in letter and in spirit. It, it is a work of legal fiction to try and squeeze it into the 14th Amendment. Really, it's ironic because just the opposite. When you actually read the 14th Amendment, it's the very one that should be used to defend the life of the unborn. The 14th Amendment says this, quote, No state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Quote, the unborn are still persons who deserve equal protection of the law. But the wicked have twisted this language to justify killing the unborn. Now it seems like the Supreme Court is going to return the legality of abortion to the states. And that is appropriate. No one should have any issue with that, simply because it's not the function of the Supreme Court to legislate. Their job is to interpret and uphold the highest law of the land, which is the Constitution. And since abortion is entirely absent from the Constitution, it should be up to the states in our system of government to independently decide how to legislate the abortion issue, which will reflect the will of the people based on their elected representatives. With that in mind, even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, the fight against abortion is not over. It just respawns afresh in 50 new battlefields in each and every state. Christians, therefore, must now speak up and let their voices be heard now more than ever. Now is not a time to be silent. And this is why I bring this up this morning. With this Supreme Court ruling due to be released any day now, it, it means two things for the church. And for one, it means opportunity. I mean, once we were effectively powerless to overturn the decision for abortion in America as it rested in the hands of nine justices, very little we could do. But now at least Christians have a chance at impacting this issue through their elected representatives. So if this decision comes, it spells opportunity, but it also spells adversity. Because the abortionists are not going to go away without a fight. A storm is coming and those who speak up for truth and righteousness are going to catch some heat. 
You already saw this after the draft opinion was released. It ignited a firestorm from abortion advocates. You had protests across major cities in front of the homes of justices. Abortion clinics were vandalized. One was firebombed. There's even an assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The reaction in news media and social media has been equally virulent and malicious. And so if this much opposition comes from the release of a draft opinion, how much more do you think will come if it is actually overturned? But like I said, now is not a time for Christians to be silent because not only do we have the truth and righteousness of Christ, we have his gospel, which is the only means of hope and salvation for a dark and dying world. Even for those who have had abortions, there is complete forgiveness and redemption to be found in Christ alone. If we have news like that, how can we be silent? Adversity is coming, probably, but also opportunity to be faithful witnesses, to be salt and light. Everything we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount is very appropriate for this time. The church is to be a preserving force in society, stemming the free fall into depravity. And the church is to be a transforming force in society, letting the light of Christ shine and and preaching the gospel. To rightly respond in a moment like this, the church needs courage and equipping. Courage to speak, equipping to speak truth. And I often find that courage comes from equipping. And that's what I want to help you with this morning. We don't make a habit on preaching, uh, of preaching on current events here at this church, but every so often an event in our nation rises to such significance that it feels like it demands a response from the word of the Lord. It demands a word. And we do have the inspired word of God, which is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In this hour of our nation's history, that good work involves speaking up for the truth and defending the lives of the unborn. The question is, are you equipped for that work, though? If you right now are faced with an adversity or an opportunity, do you think you're prepared to speak the truth in love? Seeing that one of my duties is to equip the saints with the word, it's been on my heart to do that with this issue just to preach a single sermon and give you some basic biblical equipping on the abortion issue. That you might make a ready defense for life and just let the light of Christ shine. So that's our aim this morning. I realize that for most of you, I'm I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, We understand that. Nevertheless, I hope this still bolsters your equipping and deepens your conviction on this issue. We're just going to do this in one message, so we're not going to be exhaustive, but I want to present to you a consolidated case against abortion. We're going to begin first and foremost looking at the biblical case. We'll also spend a little time including the biological case, and then we'll finish answering objections. Because as you know, that the media right now is flooded with arguments trying to support abortion, and I don't want you to be caught off guard. So it's still a tall order. We, we need to begin first with the biblical case. The case against abortion is actually incredibly simple. You, you can use a, a basic syllogism. One, murder is wrong. Two, abortion is murder. Three, therefore abortion is wrong. It, it really is that simple. You don't have to be a Christian to make that argument. A pro-life atheist might make that argument. We know the real basis for that argument is God, because you can't get life, the value of life, or morality apart from God. 
The atheists may deny that, but they're just betraying the law of God written on their heart when they say something like, murder is evil. We're not going to stop them from using our arguments, though, because it's better than the alternative. The consistent atheistic worldview can't help but arrive at something like Hitler's eugenics program, which sought to identify life unworthy of life and end it. That includes the born and the preborn. And of course, that's how you arrive at Planned Parenthood, founded by Margaret Sanger, who subscribed to the exact same eugenics philosophy. And her application was to control the American population through abortion. And for her, that meant, quote, this is her quote, the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization, end quote. And in that quote, she was talking about African-Americans. It's a poorly kept secret that she sought to eliminate entirely black people from America. And it's not an accident that Planned Parenthoods have proliferated in black neighborhoods. She also said, quote, the most merciful thing a large family can do for one of its infants is to kill it, end quote. Her deeply racist and lifeless quotes are unending. You can just keep going. But the point is, this is where a consistent godless view will take you. And that's what you get in Planned Parenthood today. For us, though, trusting God, we're not going to ignore his authority on this issue. We can appeal to the law written on the heart, but we're also going to wield his greater revelation, the scriptures, which more fully reveal his will, uh, by which we stand, by which we live, by which we will be judged and held accountable. So let us first seek to make this case biblically. The first assertion needs no detailed proof before you, I'm sure, you know, murder is wrong. By murder, we mean the unlawful taking of human life. That's what God forbid in the sixth commandment. You shall not kill. It's not talking about capital punishment or war. Those are their own debates. But the unjust, unlawful taking of human life is murder, and that is forbidden. Individuals have not been given the authority to take another human's life. Being made in the image of God, every single life has inherent value. There's a lot of talk about rights in the abortion debate, but the right to live, the right to not be murdered, trumps them all. Jesus himself reaffirmed in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw just a little while ago, that murder is still wrong. The unjust taking of human life is still wrong. We can leave it at that. That brings us to the second assertion, abortion is murder. Abortion is murder. Abortion is the unjust taking of human life. The child is innocent and has done nothing deserving death. It's not a case of capital punishment. Man can try and legalize abortion all he wants, but it doesn't change the fact that in the highest court of God's law, to take another human's life is murder. And that's what abortion does. And brutally, I might add, we're talking crushing, cutting, dismembering bodies for extraction, which are then often sold for profit. In so many ways, it is worse than murder. But abortionists claim that morally, abortion is equivalent to getting your hair cut, right? I mean, they do not view the baby as human life. The baby is just an embryo. It represents potential human life. It's not a person. It's a ball of tissue and cells. And so to remove it from your body is no different than cutting your hair or clipping your fingernails. I do wonder, though, why they advocate so heavily for women's mental health services after abortions, though. I mean, 
Do you need to see a shrink every time you get your hair cut? Though hardened, it's, it's like their conscience is crying out, this is wrong. There's something wrong with this. But this does bring us to the heart of this debate. Is the baby in the womb a living human being? Is the baby a living human being? If so, then to remove it is murder. Abortionists claim the baby is merely pregnancy tissue on the Planned Parenthood website. That's what it is. It's pregnancy tissue. But that claim fails every test. Let's present the biblical case first. Biblically, the testimony is universal that the unborn are living human persons from conception. Not at first breath, not at heartbeat, but at conception. Scripture consistently treats babies in the womb not as a clump of cells, not as a part of the mother's body, but a distinct living individual human person from conception. There are a lot of verses that show this. I'm going to give you a sampling of seven. Seven verses, seven passages showing this. First, and we're going to be quick here, so follow if you're fast. Genesis 25. Rebecca conceives. She's pregnant with twins. Later, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, 22 says, after she conceived, it says the children struggled together within her. It's like they were already fighting in the womb. But the term for children in Hebrew is banim, which is the ordinary word used for sons or children after they're born. They're called the same thing, in the womb, out of the womb. Though unborn, the twins were not viewed as cells or potential life, but as children, the same way they would be viewed out of the womb. Also in the next verse, verse 23, the Lord then spoke to her and said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. Though unborn, God himself viewed these two babies in her womb as as two peoples, brothers destined for division. They already had an identity. They were individuals in the womb. Another example comes from Samson, whose destiny was also revealed from the womb. This one's extremely telling. Judges 13, an angel of the Lord visits a barren woman and tells her she will conceive and give birth to a son. He will be named Samson. Judges 13.4 says, the angel said to her, now therefore, Be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now think about this. God had destined Samson to be a judge to deliver Israel. And God had imposed on him a Nazarite vow. That involves three things. Don't drink any alcohol. Don't cut your hair. Don't eat or touch anything unclean. And Samson would abide by by that from birth. However, while pregnant, God told Samson's mother to begin observing those vow conditions right now on his behalf. That's confirmed down in verse 13 that while pregnant, she should not drink any alcohol or eat anything unclean. But why is that? I mean, this Nazarite vow was for Samson, not his mother. So, I mean, why should she observe this while she's pregnant? He's not even been born yet. But Samson himself later says, Judges 16, 17, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. That's because he existed as Samson from his mother's womb. He was treated as an individual from conception. 
his vow began at conception. But the Lord's plan is because his life began at conception. Let's include a couple Psalms of David. Briefly, Psalm 51, verse 5, you know this, where David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David is grieving over his sin with Bathsheba, seeking the Lord's forgiveness. He laments the fact that he's been a sinner from birth, even worse, from conception. And he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. This has nothing to do with his mother's sin, the the circumstances of his conception. The whole context before and after is David's sin, his sinfulness. He means that he has had a sinful nature from conception. It's when your nature starts and it was inherited sinful something which the doctrine of original sin only confirms. In addition, notice how David thinks of himself as a person from conception. David was David from conception. Yeah, he would be later named and he would grow in size and personality and experience. That's obvious, but he wasn't just a part of his mother's body. He was an individual, a new human person. David reflects the same thought In Psalm 139, verse 13, where he says to God, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. Emphasis here on me. Each person is knit together by God in the womb. And they gain their status as an individual before God the creator when? At birth? A heartbeat? No, at conception. That's when you become you in God's eyes. Let's now turn to a pair of New Testament passages that likewise view the preborn as human persons. Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist when she's visited by Mary, and she already knows Mary to be the mother of the Lord. And Luke 1, 41 through 44 says this. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, down to verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Notice how Elizabeth attributes personhood characteristics to her baby. He's not a clump of cells. He's not potential life. Rather, this child heard Mary's voice outside the womb and responded inside the womb. With joy. And notice it says Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit here. This is not just her opinion. Several studies have confirmed what every mother already knows that the baby inside of them can respond to outside noise, music, especially the mother's voice. What's more, Elizabeth calls her unborn child here a baby. The Greek word is brephos. It's this same word always used for children after birth. Like Jesus was a baby in a manger, brephos. Inside the womb, outside the womb, they're, they're called the same thing because they are the same thing, a baby. Throughout the Bible, whether in or out of the womb, it doesn't change the fact that babies are real human persons endowed with life at conception. Now you back up and look a little bit. The conception of Jesus speaks to this issue with theological implications. Jesus is the God-man. It's where the divine Son of God, uh, the divine nature of the Son of God was joined to a human nature of a man 
in the incarnation, that he might be our perfect savior. Okay, when did that happen? At birth? At the heartbeat? When did the incarnation begin? The answer is clearly conception. Mary questions the angel, announcing her conception of a son, saying, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responds in Luke 135. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. To be our substitute sacrifice, Jesus had to identify with us, humanity, in every way. He had to be truly like us, a human. And this is why the Savior did not, the Messiah, did not descend down from heaven as a 30-year-old man just jump on the cross. This is why he did not come down as a 12-year-old. He, he began his work identifying with us the same way every human begins their life. And that is not at birth, but at conception. He began in the womb. This, we could go on and on. It would just be more of the same. The Bible never makes some developmental distinction for when human life begins. Rather, it's, it's consistent every single passage at, at conception. This is when God begins human life. Now, I want to include one more passage, number seven. This is Exodus 21. You can turn there again if you're, if you're quick. Exodus 21. This is a special passage because it teaches the implications of this truth. If the unborn are living human persons, then their lives are just as valuable as the born. And therefore, they should have equal protection under the law. That is exactly what scripture teaches. A perfect example of that here in the law of Moses. And granted, we are no longer under the law of Moses, but you see very clearly what God thinks of the value of unborn life. And that doesn't change. Exodus 21, I'll read 22 through 25. 22, 21, it says, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury... He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. He shall pay as the judges decide. But if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is case law uh, given to Israel. Uh, to, to provide wisdom to Israel's judges as they decide such cases. Here in this case, you have two men who are fighting, and they accidentally strike a pregnant woman, and then she gives birth prematurely. There, there's one ecumenical translation, the NRSV, that tries and translate this as she has a miscarriage, and that is completely false. There's two other Hebrew words for miscarriage. They're not used here. This is a word used of live birth. It literally means her children come out. So she gives birth. It's not a miscarriage. She's giving birth. The children are alive. It says, if no harm is done to the mother and child, well, great, but the, the men must still pay a penalty. Verse 22, as the judges decide, they're still going to have to pay a fine. And this is basically a reckless endangerment law, which we still have. This is why you can't fire guns in your front yard in city limits, because you might, on accident, hurt someone. So just the act comes with a fine. But if there is harm to mother or child, then the penalty is severe. 
This is the lex talionis, the, the eye for an eye, life for life, which we, we just learned about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is judicial law and punishment. So Christ reminded us we are never meant to take this law into our own hands because we are not judge, jury, and executioner. But the law, civil law, must enact just penalties and protections. And we see here that God gave the mother and the unborn child equal protection under the law. The punishment for harming the mother is the same as harming the unborn child. And if if either were killed, then you would be killed. It's the death penalty. That's because both of them are living human beings, individual persons. Both merit full protection under the law. Our law is actually the same to great contradiction to abortion morals. For example, a year ago, there's a man in the Orange County, and he was drunk driving and and wrecked his car and killed his passenger, who happened to be his pregnant girlfriend. uh, She and the baby died. And he was then charged with two counts of vehicular manslaughter. Why is that? I thought it's just a potential life, a bundle of cells. Why would he be charged with two counts of manslaughter? Why not just one? Everyone instinctively knows exactly why he should be charged with two counts of manslaughter. Because the child is alive. It goes even further though, because God's law here actually gives extra protection to the lives of the unborn because they're so much more vulnerable. There's other Old Testament case law that deals with manslaughter. That's the accidental taking of human life. And in other cases, it does not prescribe eye for an eye basically death penalty, the the lex talionis. In such cases of manslaughter, the guilty person is made to flee to a city of refuge where they have to stay and live for some period of time. It's basically their form of prison or confinement, but you're stuck in one city. The point is, it was a lesser punishment than life for life. So the point is, the law placed a higher value on the life of the unborn because they're just so much more vulnerable. And there's no limitations here on the child's age, heartbeat, even birth, nothing. So just put this together. If God's Old Testament law required the death penalty for accidentally killing an unborn child, what do you think God thinks of intentionally killing an unborn child? It's an egregious, the most egregious crime. This sampling of passages It just shows you what you're going to find everywhere else in scripture, that the unborn are consistently viewed as living persons, individuals, and their lives begin at conception. To abort them, to to end their life, therefore, is just the definition of murder, the unjust taking of human life. God forbids it. God judges it. And try as you might, you will never find abortion supported in the Bible from God the creator. Murder is wrong. Abortion is murder. Therefore, abortion is wrong. It is that simple. But next, with our time, I want to include just a brief word on the biological case against abortion. And this is still part of the Christian worldview. Because as some might say, all truth is God's truth. All biology is God's biology. He invented it. He programmed it. So let's look at it. Secondly, the biological case. Secondly, here, the biological case. The abortion debate in our nation really revolves around the definition of of human life and when human life begins. Most abortion supporters argue 
that human life does not begin at conception, but some later time. So, so when? when? When does it become wrong to kill a child? And the most radical and wicked will say at first breath, not till they take their first breath. And so committed to this worldview that they would support killing, aborting a perfectly healthy, viable nine-month-old child in the womb. I see nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> Others, most, aren't willing to go that far. Maybe they've seen the videos, the, the horrors. But they still want to support abortion. So when does human life begin? When does it become wrong to kill? Some would stick with viability, that 24 to 27 week time frame. Itself a huge spectrum. Others say the heartbeat. That's just too early for abortion activists because heartbeat is going to start at five to six weeks. That's before many women even know they're pregnant, so they can't really go with that. But all such attempts to define the beginning of human life are arbitrary and unscientific. Uh, unscientific. They're just political. Scientifically or biologically, it should be so simple and straightforward. When do the unborn become living human beings? Living human beings. Well, first, are they human? Are our babies human? Yes. A basic biological definition of a human would be an organism with each cell containing a unique set of 46 chromosomes. That's how biologically we would identify a human. You have some remains, we would test, we find 46 chromosomes, it was a human. The adult body is estimated to contain 37 trillion cells, but you all start off as one cell. That one cell is called a zygote. It forms at conception or fertilization. It's where one sperm cell fuses with one egg cell and something new is formed. Each parent contributes just 23 chromosomes of DNA. But as a result, that first child cell, the zygote, has now a fully complete set of 46 chromosomes. And they're now distinct from both parents. In fact, it is 100% unique in the whole world. Something new has been created. A genetically unique human being has just been created that did not exist before at the very moment of conception. Think about this. Every cell in the mother's body contains her 46 chromosomes. Every cell. And within those chromosomes, her DNA. So if she were to cut her hair or clip her nails, those cells would have the DNA of the mother. They are parts of her body. But the embryo from the very first cell is not a part of her body by biological definition. It's in her body, but it is no longer part of her body. It has its own unique human DNA. Yet the child is reliant on the mother to grow in the womb at first, obviously, but he or she is not a part of the mother's body. The embryo is not an extension of pregnancy tissue. So from conception, the child is human. Is the child alive? When does life start? Why not just answer that biologically? I'll give you a basic biological definition of life. Life can be defined as the characteristic of something that preserves its existence in an environment, exhibiting the following traits. Homeostasis, organization, metabolism, growth, adaptation, response to stimuli, and reproduction. You can download the sermon and think on that longer if you want to, but... But included in this definition of life are single-celled organisms like bacteria. They are alive. Now, they're just one cell. 
but they're a living organism that has DNA, metabolizes, reproduces, so forth. By the same definition, human life starts at conception, and just because it's one cell does not mean it's not alive. The creation of the zygote, it's just one cell. And yeah, I can't walk or talk yet, but by definition, is that single human cell with 46 chromosomes alive? Yes, it metabolizes resources, it grows, it reproduces, it responds to the environment, it organizes, and so on, all by itself. It's just by itself, by God's programming. The zygote divides, cells divide, they start organizing into all the different parts of our body. It is a miracle of God's creation. Abortionists try and make some developmental argument for the beginning of human life, but they're just, they're all arbitrary and not scientifically Support it. You, as an individual living being, are you, no matter your physical state of development, be it elderly to adult to teen to adolescent to child to toddler to newborn to fetus to zygote. Human life goes through constant change and development. And to end life unjustly at any stage of development is murder. And that is wrong. Even a heartbeat is not good enough as a starting point for human life. Yeah, I get it. It's true. You can't live without a heartbeat, but you also can't live without the cell metabolism and division that takes place with that very first cell. I mean, that is just as essential. Everything in every stage is essential. If you want to go with science and biology, human life begins at conception. It's not complicated. Human life has a very distinct, definite, tidy beginning point. And it's at conception when the zygote is formed. Biblically and biologically, just as we observe God's created world and his written word, it's just crystal clear. Human life begins at conception and to end any life unjustly before or after the womb or birth. It's just the definition of murder. And so the unborn, they should be protected, defended, not aborted. And they should be given equal protection under the law. Now, this is still not the end of the matter because as, as solid and clear as the case against abortion is, abortion supporters still raise objections in a vain attempt to intellectually or morally support their view. These objections provide convenient excuses to keep their conscience suppressed in unrighteousness, but none of them hold water. We still can't be exhaustive, but for the sake of equipping, which is all we're doing this morning, I want to help you answer some of the most common pro-abortion objections that you will run into. So we'll finish with third, answering objections. Answering objections. Now I should point out, there are some who will concede the argument, and they'll say, okay, human life starts at conception. Biological life starts at conception, but not personhood. They'll argue that personhood doesn't. Therefore, abortion is okay because you're not killing a person. That is just semantics. Personhood has become a completely arbitrary, malleable term. One which activists can make mean whatever they want to mean. Don't forget, murder is the unjust taking of human life. Human life begins at conception. Enough said. But let's still try and and argue or address some of the ways they argue against this. 
They'll often argue against counting an embryo as a person to be protected because it's small, it's undeveloped, and it's fully dependent on the mother for survival. But, you know, being a living human being is not contingent on any of those things. And the exact same reason could be used to justify killing infants, children. I mean, newborns, they're pretty small, and so are toddlers. Does, that, does their small size justify infanticide? And newborns, they're also still vastly underdeveloped. They can't even hold up their head. Is that a reason to kill them? I mean, newborns, they really share zero traits of personality as a, a grown adult. Does that mean their life, their personhood hasn't started yet? Why stop there? Why not justify killing 10-year-olds? They haven't hit puberty yet. They're not fully developed. And newborns are likewise still 100% dependent on their mothers. They can't survive on their own for several years. And so is that what confers personhood or worth? If so, then the mentally handicapped and the elderly should be killed as well. If you agree with all this, I mean, congratulations. You've placed yourself in the exact lineage of Nazi Germany. But it's not like these embryos, it's not like they're conscious, right? Some argue that human life starts with consciousness. But that is likewise arbitrary. Consciousness is a vast spectrum. It cannot be identified. There's no telling when consciousness starts. Some have used that argument to justify even killing toddlers. And for that matter, though, wouldn't this justify killing you every night when you sleep? Because you go unconscious. Or what about people in comas? They've lost consciousness. Their life has ended. We just automatically kill them. You see how none of the abortion arguments are consistently applied. Abortion advocates are grasping at straws. They have to. They have to find something to latch on to because they, they can't give up this issue. If they give up the abortion issue, they lose something else. And that something else is what they're really fighting for. What is that other thing that they're more fundamentally holding on to and fighting for? The answer, in short, is self reflected in hedonism, selfishness, lifestyle choices. There have been countless studies now asking women, polling women on why they had an abortion. And these studies all show incredibly low percentages were done because of rape. Some down to 1% out of rape. Some 0.1% to truly save the life of the mother. The overwhelming majority cited some lifestyle issue. The stress of an unexpected pregnancy, the reality of single motherhood, the financial burden, relationship strife. Pregnancy and parenting require immense selflessness and sacrifice, and they they don't want to do that. They want to live their lives. And so they would rather sacrifice the life of their child on the altar of self. But wait, you might think, you know, what if you had a woman who was alone and impoverished, There are are no prospects for her or her child. They're going to suffer greatly. Isn't the most compassionate thing to abort that child? No, (laughs) it's not. You're not God. You do not know their fate or determine such things. And you've not been given any authority by God to make some mercy kill determination. And furthermore, you could still use the exact same logic to kill children after birth. What if a woman has a one-year-old and she's become destitute, she has no prospects, she's alone, she's impoverished? That same logic would say the most compassionate thing to do would be to kill your one-year-old. 
The same goes for the argument that all children should be wanted. Now, only mothers who really want their children should have them. The rest should be aborted. But you can see how this too elevates the mother's desire for convenience over the right to life that the child has from God. And yet, it's obviously true. All children should be wanted, but does that justify murder? You can always go the honorable route of adoption. But what about the mother who's holding a one-year-old and she realizes she no longer wants this child? She has no relatives. Nobody else wants this child. Does that mean therefore make it morally justifiable for her to kill the baby? Of course not. You're seeing the trend. Just about every argument they use can be used to justify killing children after birth. By, by the, the standard of life they give in trying to exclude the preborn, they end up excluding the born. Any good reason you find to kill a child before birth can equally become a good reason to kill a child after birth. I'll say that again. Any good reason you find to kill a child before birth will equally apply as a good reason for killing a child after birth. If your child is born with Down syndrome, you didn't know about it until birth, so you're holding your child there in the hospital. But does his condition now give you a right to kill him? No. So why would that give you a right to kill him while he was still in the womb? Only the most depraved go down that road. Do you really want to be in the camp with literally Hitler and Margaret Sanger? That's who's in that camp. But you might say, it's not fair. Some, some women especially might argue, I mean, their body gets hijacked by the baby. They, they've got to care for the baby, suffer for the baby, maybe lose their job for the baby while the man just goes free and lives his life. My body, my choice is the refrain. My body, my choice, they say. And they've relabeled the whole discussion from pro-abortion to pro-choice. It's about a woman's right to choose. That, apparently, that's what it's about. Many people, they, they would say they oppose abortion, but you know they just can't interfere with a woman's right to choose what to do with her body. And so they just uh, give up on the issue. But first off, you, I trust see how that argument was completely thrown out the window during the COVID pandemic. Suddenly they started preaching your body, the government's choice when it came to vaccines. It's no longer my body, my choice, but that's the government's choice and live with it. But the whole argument, my body, my choice is disingenuous because no one is stopping them from choosing what to do with their bodies. But when they choose to engage in sexual relations, they're accepting the consequence of pregnancy That now brings about a brand new, separate, individual human body with its own DNA. That new human body has the right to live, and you do not get the right to murder just because you don't want to live with the consequences of the choices you already made with your body. And really, men are held to a double standard here. Women might argue, I consented to the sexual relations. I did not consent to having the child. Therefore, I should not be held responsible for the life of the child And they go free with an abortion. But is that how we treat men? Say a man has relations with a woman. She gets pregnant. He doesn't know about it. She has the child. And he never knew. But then she tells him later that he is the father. A paternity test proves it. Now she wants child support. He argues before the court. I consented to the sexual relations. I did not consent to having the child. Therefore, I should not bear responsibility for the child. What do you think is going to happen? The court will force him to bear responsibility for that child for 18 years. 
merely because of his biological role. That's it. Just because he played a part in biology, he's responsible for the life of the child for the next 18 years. That sounds like a double standard. Now, relatedly, this is a good place to address the rape objection. Because it is not always true that women get pregnant because they choose to. That's not always true. And some will object and argue abortion should be justified in the cases of rape or incest. Now, whenever you're dealing with an actual case like that, we we must always recognize the untold pain and hardship of these situations. And we should offer total and tangible support for the mother. Anything. This is one of the greatest examples of how sin brings so much suffering to human life. But still, two wrongs don't make a right. At the end of the day, two wrongs don't make a right. Would it be right to kill a baby out of the womb because he or she was conceived by rape or incest? Maybe a young lady was too ashamed to admit it, but after delivering the baby, looking at him, she can't handle the emotional pain. She reveals the circumstances of her conception was rape. Is it then justifiable to kill that baby because it was conceived by rape? No. The child never loses his right to live because of the circumstances of his conception. Deuteronomy 24, 16 affirms children are not to be put to death because of the the crimes of their parents. Cases of pregnancy by rape, they are hard and heartbreaking and again merit, especially the church's total support. But again, two wrongs don't make a right. It still does not justify murder. Then you have to recognize that most times this argument is just used as a red herring to distract from the main issues. Because again, reality shows, studies show, this is extremely rare. Again, many surveys and studies put abortion because of rape down at like 1%. One study put the number as 0.6%. And so here's the thing, in an argument, when you're using this vast minority case to argue for supporting unlimited abortion, it's just a pretext. It's just an excuse. Are they willing to concede that all other, all other 99% of abortions are wrong because life begins at conception? If they're unwilling to concede that, that just proves that they're bringing up this marginal case of rape as a pretext for their position to justify all abortion. Likely because, I mean, this pulls at the heartstrings of people. It takes their minds out of the equation. They think with their hearts. And again, it it deserves our full compassion, but it doesn't justify murder. As terrible as rape is, the unjust murder of an innocent baby should pull our heartstrings even more. Just beware red herrings that distract from the real issues. We need to wrap it up here. So one more objection What about abortion to save the life of the mother? I'm sure you've heard that one as well. This too is extremely rare. I've seen some studies showing that 0.1% of abortions are done to actually save the physical life of the mother. We have to add the caveat of physical life because abortion advocates have redefined the mother's health to mean anything, anything pertaining to her well-being. If she gets pregnant and is sad because of the pregnancy, She can have, in many states, an abortion through the third trimester, citing it's affecting the mother's health. There's nothing physically wrong with her. It's just, it's a mental condition. And so again, you'll find many using this marginal case, which pulls the heartstrings to defend the mother's life, to justify all abortion. That doesn't fly. But let's talk about when it's legitimate. 
let's just grant the hypothetical or in the, sometimes the real cases, okay, this is legitimate. You assume you have a case where it's just, it's medically proven that if the, the pregnancy continues, both the mother and child will die. Okay, that's our assumption. Then you have a choice between the loss of one life or the loss of two lives. If that actually happened, this seems to be the only morally justifiable allowance for abortion. Not a mandate, but allowance. I do agree with theologian Wayne Grudem as he writes in his new tome, Christian Ethics, quote, This scenario is significantly different from most abortion cases because in this instance, removing the unborn child from the mother's body results from directly intending to save the life of the mother, not from directly intending to take the child's life. If abortion is necessary to save the mother's life, this would seem to be the only situation in which abortion is morally justified, end quote. And that that does seem to be right, where you're intending to save life, not to harm or kill life. But again, by no means can this rarest of exceptions be used to justify any other practice of abortion for any reason, which is what they try and do, how they mostly use this argument. We'll need to put an end to it there, but I hope this has helped equip you just to, to think through in advance and be prepared to respond to some of the main objections to the pro-life position that you might be faithful witnesses. You have to realize that often in this situation, we're up against hardened people. I mean, how does someone get to the point where they're willing to violently fight for the right to murder children? It's just a sign of God's judgment, which has already come, as Romans 1 tells us. Romans one twenty eight says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And verse 32 says, Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. When someone completely turns away from the light of God, that they enter outer darkness, you might say. God, that's when he hands them over to their sin, to a depraved mind, and you get profound depravity. Morality gets flipped on its head, and we can say with Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for dark. This has happened before, so we're not surprised. Even in Israel's own history, there were times when the nation was so unbelieving, idolatrous, and depraved that they participated in the child sacrifice rituals of the pagan nations around them. From Ahab to Manasseh, just read 2 Kings, it says over and over that they made their sons pass through the fire, offering them to Baal or Molech or whatever other god. It says they filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And it was largely because of that, that not long thereafter, God destroyed them. We don't know what the future holds for America, but as it has often been said, if, if God blesses America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. As for us, though, in the church, what are we to do and how are we to respond? And yet, everything we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount is perfectly fitting for this time. To, to be salt and light. Resist evil. Share Christ. Don't retaliate. Don't fight fire with fire. But as Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And if you are persecuted, remember Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
You just need to be faithful to honor your Lord and Savior and to be a witness of his kingdom, his righteousness. And hopefully everything we've equipped you with this morning helps you do that. Above all, though, just remember to minister the gospel to people. Yes, defend the truth, engage in all the apologetic stuff we talked about this morning, but just remember that the real power to transform hardened hearts is only found in the gospel. Look, you may not have had an abortion, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty and condemned before a perfectly righteous God. Who's without sin? Who is righteous? There's not one. This is precisely why God sent his son, Christ, to begin with. Just in the greatest love, as we read and sang about this morning, he sent his son to be that God-man, that perfect substitute sacrifice to redeem us from all of our sins, to, to pay the price for all of our sins, abortion included. And that's what he did by dying on the cross and, and suffering the Father's full wrath, swallowing it up, drinking that cup to the full. And he rose on the third day. And now by faith in him alone, as you just surrender your life to him and, and repent, he promises to grant you new life, eternal life, forgiveness, the pardon. Again, that includes even the sin of abortion. He died for that and can, it's the only way to be completely free from the guilt and the shame that every sin brings, abortion especially. He's the only way you will find peace and joy, mercy, and life. We don't, none of us deserve this. But that's why it's called grace. And it's only the grace of God that will change people and change worldviews overnight. And so this grace goes forth through the gospel message. We must preach the gospel. Yeah, go forth, stand for life, argue for just laws, seek equal protection, impact the political landscape, vote. Yeah, do all that stuff. But foremost, preach the gospel. Tell people about the Savior who has come. That is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So let's make that our brightest light. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we, we thank you for Christ our Savior. We know he is our only hope and our, our, our delight. He's likewise this nation's only hope, this world's only hope. A day is coming, you've said, when this Savior himself will return as the judge and to render his verdict and to give all the, the recompense for their deeds. And by that judgment, we all would stand condemned. Whether we've had an abortion or not, we've all sinned. We all are, are justly condemned as unrighteous in a perfectly holy God's sight. But we have to praise you, knowing that we have the good news that the same Savior already came once, the first time, not to judge, but to save, to even give himself as an offering for sin. He did that to pay the full penalty that we owe you, Lord, and, and to give us his own righteousness, to clothe us in his robe of perfect righteousness. We, we thank you for your grace that goes out by your spirit to, to bring the dead to life, that though many of us were adulterers, murderers, had abortions, liars, thieves, we can rejoice that such were some of you, some of us. We've been justified, sanctified, washed in Christ. We thank you for the, the glory of the gospel. We know that's our only hope. Your word has equipped us with truth. We need to let that light shine, be salt in this dark world. And so deepen our conviction and equipping this morning from all that we've learned. 
But may we just let that light shine, not put it under a basket. This is a time for us just to be faithful to our Lord, who himself proved faithful even unto death. And so we follow him and empower us by the Spirit just to be faithful, to pray, and to seek you and your will in this world. Uh, We need you, so be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.